This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Richard Scott and welcome to the Podcast Hour, a show where I share some of the best audio storytelling and hopefully find you some great stuff to listen to. Coming up today, how our ears can deceive us. Oh sod it, the bloody thing's stuck again, with the words being sufficiently well articulated that apparently the BBC asked Oliver Postgate to have the sounds removed. Listening to the city. Certain places on the block will just have beautiful signature sounds. Talk to me, baby, talk to me, baby. Simple stories in the neighbourhood. Our suburb is a place about 12 kilometres north of Melbourne. It's a place called Reservoir. You can get a good pizza down Broadway, fish and chips right under the shop. Or a Boston bun at Sergeant's Cakes or a barbecue at Edwards Lake Park. And if you want to fit in around here, then you best say it right. But there's one thing you can't do reservoir, and that's call it reservoir. And Case File, a popular true crime series with an anonymous Australian host. From the moment Stephen exited the aircraft, he was a dead man. Nothing could have saved him. And next time you hear something good, then please do let me know. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. Our sense of hearing isn't nearly as well developed as our sense of sight. And as we devote less of our brain power to perceiving sounds, it's relatively easy to trick the human ear into hearing things that aren't actually there. I enjoyed this BBC doco called Ghosts in the Machine recently, which explores these kind of audio hallucinations with host Laurie Taylor. And I don't know how to call you up, but if you're there, I'm quite sure to know that we are anxious to hear from you. I'm a rationalist. Anybody who In fact, I'm currently president of the Rationalist Association. So, one of the last people, you might think, to hear imaginary voices. Of course, like everyone else, I sometimes mishear. For years, I thought the Beatles sang, Help me get my feed bag on the ground. But mishearing the odd lyric, Excuse me while I kiss this guy, Jose, can you see by the dawn's early light, Gladly my cross-eyed bear? 
Well, it's a long way away from claiming to hear secret messages. But just over a month ago, around, around 2 o'clock in the morning, as I was lying in bed listening to a World Service report on the, on the growth of European populism, I distinctly heard another voice speaking underneath that of the reporter. A voice which seemed to be talking in gospel-like tones about the end of the world. For the populist nationalist movement, not only in France, in Italy, Germany... The quest to find out some more about these strange otherworldly noises in recorded sounds takes Laurie Taylor down a rabbit hole of electronic voice phenomena, or EVP, research. The first voice is that of Margareta Petrowski. This is a real piece of evidence collected by the godfather of electronic voice phenomena, Konstantin Raudive, and his anonymous, rather stern, female assistant. How she felt in the beyond, and a voice identified as coming from Margareta answered... Bedenke, ich bin. Imagine, I am. Bedenke, ich bin. Anne Winsper. If you actually listen carefully and frequently, the sounds bear no relation to what they actually think they've been saying. Koste, tu tick na. Inevitably, people are told what they should be hearing on the clip before they actually listen to it. There's a quill in the cabeza. You have a rabbit on your head. Raudiver did the same. He would sit people down, tell them what they should be hearing, and if they heard what he thought they should, they were classed as good listeners and given lots of other clips to listen to. If they said, I don't actually hear that, they were classed as bad listeners and he never used them again. Electronic voice phenomena as a manifestation of auditory illusions, they are auditory illusions, but the mechanisms that produce those illusions are exactly the same as the mechanisms that produce what we normally perceive as being reality. Musician and writer Joe Banks. Almost everything that EVP researchers do to try and convince people that these phenomena are really ghosts strongly resembles some kind of psychoacoustics demonstration from the psychology of hearing. You know? When I heard that I was going to meet you, I thought, yeah. what sort of weirdo are you going to turn out to be? <laughs> and I now realise you're using it to explore the phenomenon of auditory... Auditory perception. Auditory perception. The yes, whole the... phenomenon of auditory perception. I wrote a book called Rorschach Audio. The, the basic premise of the book is that the way the mind perceives auditory images, so to speak, is similar to the way we see, say, monstrous faces in a Rorschach inkblot test. That's fascinating. Here she is now, Ellen DeGeneres. Electronic voice phenomena may not actually be voices from the beyond, but it's still telling us something very interesting about how our auditory perceptual systems work. Sophie Scott is a cognitive neuroscientist at University College London. All right, how many of you have heard of this Laurel and Yanny thing? Earlier this year, an auditory illusion went viral. This went absolutely huge. It was one piece of speech which people could hear in different ways, and people were getting very excited about why that was. Laurel. Laurel. What are you hearing now? Laurel. Quite right. It's Yanni. Laurel. Okay, how many people hear Yanni? Laurel. Again. Laurel. No. I was completely wrong. 
The word wasn't Yanni at all. It was Laurel. Laurel. Okay, how many people hear Laurel? <laughs> all right, the people who hear Yanni, I'm, I'm going to have to ask you to leave because uh, <laughs> it's crazy, though, isn't it? I mean, we the speech could exactly be heard it. as either Laurel or Yanni. So people are absolutely adamant that they could hear one of them. They could hear Laurel and they couldn't hear Yanni, and they really couldn't understand how somebody could hear it differently. Laurel. Laurel. When the brain solved a problem, it tends to stick with that. So once you've heard it as Laurel, it's very, very, very hard to hear it as Yanni. But it's also often a characteristic of humans. We can find it very difficult to imagine somebody else could be perceiving the world differently from us. And, of course, they very easily can. You can think of a great deal of human artistic endeavour as being exploring these perceptual characteristics. So a lot of the skill in music composition is playing around with the figure ground, what's standing out at any one time in a piece of music, what's being used to group together different themes in an orchestra. One of the joys of listening to what's called polyphonic music, music that's got a lot of different voices at once, is being able to kind of sort of take a perceptual tour around what's going on, what's coming in, how can I listen to it? There's a phenomenon in perception called pareidolia. That's when our brains can't help detecting familiar things in random patterns. You know the sort of thing, woman sees Jesus in a piece of burned toast. You can have auditory pareidolia too, and it's when we start interpreting these patterns as meaningful, what the psychologist Klaus Conrad called apophenia, that the fun really begins. Back in the winter of 2009, a toy company on the south coast started selling a model of a cheeky mouse wearing a Santa hat. How cute! But that wasn't all. Our cute little cheeky mouse also had a little song. How sweet! But wait a moment. What were the first words of that tune? Oh, of course, no problem there. Silly of me. Jingle bells. But that wasn't how many good citizens of Bournemouth heard it. Indeed, according to the Bournemouth Echo, a veritable moral panic swept the city. Adrian Williams, a 26-year-old IT worker, summed up the problem for the paper. It sounds, he said, a lot more like... And now that I've told you about the auditory concerns of all those Bournemouth residents, you may also find it almost impossible to take auditory exception to their claims. Our ears are very susceptible to trickery. We are more prone to illusions of sound than we are to illusions of vision. Diana Deutsch is a professor of psychology at the University of California, San Diego. She's one of the world's foremost experts on auditory perception and processing. A surprising characteristic of the hearing mechanism is that it involves a remarkably small amount of neural tissue. If we take the visual system, there are about 125 million photoreceptors, rods and cones, in each eye, but we have remarkably few auditory receptors, which are called hair cells, roughly 15,000 in each ear, with only 
three and a half thousand sending signals up to the brain. So we are actively engaged really in compensating. We're scrabbling around, if you like, trying to make sense of the auditory world. Absolutely. Given what a small amount of information the hearing system has to draw on, it's not surprising that it draws on experience, attention, expectation and emotion. And so we create for ourselves sound that really are different from those in the outside world. That scrabbling around, those different ways of interpreting auditory inputs, can have strange effects, as Diana found out one day, by accident. One afternoon, I was fine-tuning the CD I was preparing on music and the brain, and I was looping phrases so that I could hear them over and over and over and over and over and over again. The opening commentary to the CD contains the following sentence. The sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present, but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible. They sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible. They sometimes behave so strangely. Sometimes behave so strangely. Sometimes behave so strangely. Sometimes behave so strangely. So Diana leaves the tape looping round and round, pops out of the studio and goes next door to make a cup of tea. As she's sitting there with her brew, suddenly it appeared to me that a strange woman was singing. The phrase had perceptually morphed from speech into song by the simple process of repetition. So strangely, so strangely, so strangely, so strangely. Well, so what you might think. We've all had the weird experience of an earworm when a rhythm, tune or melody seems to get stuck in your head by dint of mental repetition. But it's when you hear the whole phrase one more time that something rather unexpected happens. It starts in the grey, mundane tones of speech. And then... When it comes to the phrase that had been repeated, it seems that I burst into song. The sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present, but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible. Some auditory assumptions are commonplace. How about your own present auditory assumptions that radio presenters like myself are using fresh talk? That we're just chatting, talking. That we're speaking, how can I put this naturally, rather than, well, you know, reading from a script in a manner which we've, which we've learned, more or less, uh, how can I put this, to make sound spontaneous. Thanks, Ned. And it's... Oh, sorry, I just elbowed the microphone. <laughs> That's the thrill of live radio, I suppose. Which reminds me... <laughs> sorry about that, just my little radiophonic bomb mo. No, really, I am live. I'm not on tape now, because my piece this morning is so very topical that... <laughs> Oh, this is ridiculous. You can take a joke too far. For was it not Mr Martin Fisher, the dying of light Victor Lewis-Smith on Radio 4's Loose Ends, deliciously shattering at least half a dozen radio talk conventions in approximately 26 seconds. Of course, in the wrong hands, that type of oral mischievousness can be merely self-serving. But at its best, whether in drama or comedy or music, it exercises, expands our auditory muscles... This auditory phenomenon 
is called the shepherd risse glissando, or slide, an apparently ascending sound which somehow, much like an M.C. Escher staircase, never quite ascends. It's been used by film composers and sound designers to ramp up an intangible feeling of anxiety, a sense of restless yet unfulfilled striving. And if I flip it over... Hang on just a moment. How's that? Well, I suspect that even now, your heads are beginning to droop. Diana Deutsch again. People tend to hear something that's quite depressing. When I play these glides to my class, they just start nodding their heads and bowing lower and lower and lower and lower and lower and lower. And lower. But let's not nod off before we reach some sort of conclusion. Before a proper scientific recognition that although an empire of nonsense has been built upon claims to hear voices coming from above the clouds and beyond the grave, there are very good, very good reasons for acknowledging that what we hear is often based upon erroneous assumptions. Put it this way, hearing, like seeing, is not always a good basis for believing. Ghosts in the Machine, presented by Laurie Taylor and produced by Stephen Rajam for BBC Wales. To the best of our knowledge, or TT Book to its friends, started life as a radio show back in 1990 on Wisconsin Public Radio. 28 years later and it's still on the radio on nearly 200 different stations across the US. And of course now you can podcast it all too. Husband and wife team Anne Strainchamps and Steve Polson do most of the interviewing with Anne taking the lead role as host. And the format's perhaps best described as variations on a theme. Each episode takes a big idea and explores it with a range of different interviews. Topics have included recently the search for meaningful work, automation and forgiveness. Here's a couple of clips from a recent episode I enjoyed too called Listening to the City. We've already met a biologist listening to trees and a composer getting inspired by urban sounds in New York. Here's the host, Anne Strainchamps, introducing the next slice of sound. We're listening to cities this hour. And we've been to New York. Next, we're heading to Baltimore, where two podcasters, Aaron Henkin and Wendell Patrick, are interviewing people and collecting their stories block by block. So it's an experiment in what I guess you could call hyper-local listening. The podcast is called Out of the Blocks. What's your excuse today? Are the preachers still in the money? Because these preachers don't want yours. Well, my name is uh, Elder Grissom, and we're on Greenmount and 33rd. It's a really deceptively simple concept. This is Aaron. One block, everybody's story. Father God designed the creation that he does not want to be right with him. There is the truth available. The devil is a liar. And that alone brings me out. We go to one city block and we meet and interview everybody who will talk to us. I'm, I'm certain that you hear something we call the making the gun talk. 
Make the gun talk, huh? Yeah. Certain places on a block will just have beautiful signature sounds. Talk to me, baby. Talk to me, baby. <laughs> I compose and record a soundtrack for each episode. And this is Wendell. Often using sounds from the blocks and environments themselves as instruments. My name's Stacy Rose. Scott Toshop, 2119 Emerson Avenue. What's my nickname? Shorty! Shorty, they call me Shorty. You tie your back on now. <laughs> came for one time, she going out with two good times. Wendell, the score under this is so propulsive and dynamic. What kind of building blocks did you use to create that? Well, I was really excited when I was there with Aaron, you know, when he pulled out this air gun, because it was, I, I had a pretty good idea of what I was going to do. Really sort of in, in everyday life, everything, whether it's a voice or an air gun or you know, birds, everything has pitch and rhythm. Wait, does an air gun have a pitch? It does. It actually has actually has multiple pitches playing at the same time. But, but yeah, so basically in the score, I wrote an orchestral accompaniment that matched the pitches and the harmonies and the rhythm, actually, of the tire gun. Indianapolis 500, uh, that's what they do to Indianapolis 500, baby. On this block, you'll also find a corner diner called Soul Source, which is run by a Trinidadian woman. There is a Pentecostal storefront church on that block. There's a homeless man who lives in a van in the parking lot of the auto shop. Why do people want to be part of this? It never ceases to amaze me what people are willing, able, and eager to share with us about their lives. And I think it was Terry Gross who said this beautifully. She said, it's the secret wish of the soul to be interviewed. Yeah, I think the fact that you hear all the residents themselves not only telling the stories, but introducing the show, closing out the show, doing all the transitions, so it really does sound like you're hearing a block speaking. We're standing on the legendary, most notorious Emerson Avenue, Pulaski Street, 2100 block. Soul Sauce Restaurant. Leo Tosavix. Emmy's Food Palace. Refuge Way of the Cross Church of Deliverance. Emelance Restaurant. Best used appliances. Best appliances in town. 2126 Emerson Avenue. 2101. As you get out of one person's story or the sound of one person's environment, it's that collage effect of that the way each one of those stories kind of bumps into the one after it or blends with the one after it. They're really, you know, Mm -hmm. it's a mosaic. It's the amalgam of all of them together that give you that bigger picture. It's almost like the city itself is playing music or singing. Yeah. One of the most elaborate versions of this that you did, I think, is the is it King's Fried Chicken? <laughs> yeah. That place is on the corner of uh, 33rd and Greenmount. Brother, you said everything, right? This place was a musical treasure trove. Spatulas, chopping up cheesesteaks, deep fryers, sizzling. This is your orchestra. <laughs> You're composing with it. <laughs> yeah, well, I think, you know, when one is cooking or chopping things up, there's always a 
And we all sort of develop a natural rhythm to whatever it is that we're doing. Aaron Henkin and Wendell Patrick of the Out of the Blocks podcast from Baltimore. And later in that same episode, there's an interesting chat about sound and prejudice with a sound historian. Here's Anne Strainchamps again. Jennifer Stover is a sound studies scholar. She teaches at Binghamton University, and she grew up in Southern California, one of the most diverse regions in America. She was an early hip-hop fan, and it was when she was going out to concerts and clubs that she first started noticing what she calls the sonic color line. This was about, I would say, 2007, maybe, 2006. And it was at the moment when LA's downtown was changing from the site where brown and poor people lived in the city to its current kind of gentrified state. So all of these old factories and empty office buildings were being transformed into lofts and condominiums. And folks on Skid Row were being pushed out. I had gone to a concert at the Hollywood Bowl. I'd actually gone to see Isaac Hayes at the Hollywood Bowl. As often happens in LA, I got stranded downtown in the middle of the night waiting for the bus. And what I heard coming from the doorways at two in the morning was classical music, really high volume classical music. And I was standing there by myself going, well, what is happening here? And then I realized that music was being played to keep people from sleeping in the doorway. So it's kind of like a hostile architecture, right? Sound being used as a deterrent. But then because it's quote unquote classical music, it can't possibly be noise, no matter how loud you have it. This actually ups the class feeling of people in the building while really being this kind of hostile keep out sound. This is basically sonic gentrification. Affluent white people have moved in and feel like, well, now we get to decide what's noise and what isn't. Exactly. Also, just the idea that when you buy into a place, when you move into a neighborhood, the neighborhood has to conform to your ideas about what a neighborhood sounds like, rather than an adjustment to the sounds that are around you. So what's an example of, say, a public debate around noise that you think actually was a racial debate? Another example of racial politics operating through sound occurred in New York City in Harlem, and it involved a drum circle taking place outside at Marcus Garvey Park on Sunday afternoons. This drum circle had been there since the late 60s and came out of the Black Power Movement and Black Arts Movement. And in 2007, a condo building that had sold and been refurbished, rents raised, and white middle-class people moving into a neighborhood that has historically been Black and Puerto Rican, there began to be increasing noise complaints by the residents to their condo board and to the police This sound became something that the white condo residents really fixated on. And that is actually probably occurring in many forms in cities across the country. So I was thinking, you know, the history of big cities like New York is in a lot of ways a history of displacement. As populations shift and move from one neighborhood to another, sounds like you could almost write the history of cities in sound. Oh, absolutely. 
it's one of the things that I studied quite intensely. I've actually looked at New York in the 40s when there was another moment of upheaval after the war when Puerto Ricans were moving from Puerto Rico to the States. And you find in the newspapers at the time, like the New York Times, letters from white people talking about their Puerto Rican neighbors, but saying things like, the city's become an audio slum. Wow. And I study a sound artist named Tony Schwartz, who in the 1940s lived in Hell's Kitchen, right near where Lincoln Center was about to be developed. So he lived through the displacement and the destruction of San Juan Hill, which was a largely Black and Latino neighborhood that was raised completely to make Lincoln Center. They come by and they watch us dancing out on the streets, and they think it's terrible and disgusting. But, you know, they do the same thing, too, only they do it in the nightclubs. He has recordings from that era of that neighborhood and actually made the argument through a radio show that here we are destroying thousands of musical performances taking place every night to create a space for one very elite performance happening every night. Who has the power to control the kind of sounds that are made in the city? And also, who has to live with the noise of all of this construction being built? Wow. Whether it's the Lincoln Center or the Cross Bronx Expressway, certain sounds, very loud sounds, we're supposed to be able to tolerate because they're sold as being good for everybody when they're serving only a certain population. Mm. Listening to The City from TT Book or to the best of our knowledge, hosted by Anne Strainchamps and the sound designer is Joe Hardkey. And thanks to the show's digital producer, Mark Rickers, for his help sharing that with you. You don't need lots of fancy gear or a cold case or ads for mattresses or sound design wizardry to make a good podcast. Sometimes you can just walk around the place you live with recording gear and a sense of curiosity, capturing stories. From Human Ordinary, Sam Loy shares his Melbourne suburb in In the Neighbourhood. Our house in the middle of our street is a white weatherboard home with an olive tree in the front. Our backyard is partitioned off with an access alley down the side, which only the landlord has the key for. It would be exciting if there was something untoward going on, but I peeked over the fence one day and it was just growing artichokes. From our street, you can see the city on a clear day. Every New Year's Eve, we head out to the road so we can see the fireworks over the buildings. There's often people letting some off at the local park and it's so loud that all the neighbourhood dogs freak out. A few blocks away, In the industrial estate, it's a drive-in movie theatre. It's one of only two left in the state, and we go there in the summer to sit out on camping chairs and eat toffee popcorn. There's a train line that cuts down the middle of our suburb, and on the other side is the local pool, an athletics track, more parkland. There's two little shopping strips either side of the train station, mostly bakeries and restaurants or thrift shops. There's always locals about, but nothing much to bring others to the suburb. Nothing with the latest bells and whistles. Sometimes at night, we'll hear a police chopper overhead. They busted up a marijuana grow house recently. It was right near our place. And a buddy of mine lived next door to one in his quiet street on the other side of the train tracks. Once, I left my bike chained up at the train station for a couple of days. And when I finally came to get it, it was gone. 
I reported the theft to the police, but I didn't have a photo and couldn't even really remember what it looked like. As yet, the crime remains unsolved. On weekends in my neighbourhood, you can hear the match sirens from the local football. When the weather is nice on a Sunday, a group of men will often meet to play cricket. They're not part of any club. They just get together when they can to socialise and have a hit. Families will be down at the park near the lake, small barbecues filling the air with smells of cooking meat, men on park benches sharing a shisha, kids going on the flying fox or the giant slide down the hill. Our suburb is a place about 12 kilometres north of Melbourne. It's a place called Reservoir. You can get a good pizza down Broadway, fish and chips right under the shop. Or a Boston bun at Sergeant's Cakes or a barbecue at Edwards Lake Park. And if you want to fit in around here, then you best say it right. But there's one thing you can't do reservoir, and that's call it reservoir. Uh-uh, uh-uh, you don't call it reservoir. I think that's what makes it so poignant is that people are quite, it's quite polarising. This is Danny, local resident, musician and co-writer of the Reservoir song. I mean, the lady on the train on the announcement tends to the reservoir, or it's almost in between. Now arriving at Reservoir. And, yeah, when we put the song out, we realised people weren't happy about the lady on the train. Sam started Human Ordinary a few years ago after his first child was born to give himself a bit of a creative outlet. And since then, he's assembled 18 stories covering an eclectic mix of topics from vegetarianism to wrestling, from Elvis to Aussie rules. Anyway, back to Reservoir. And here's Danny the Muso again. It's real. It's genuine. There's like, there's no ego or pretense about it. I guess having those staple day-to-day things in your existence that you, you become accustomed to. So seeing the same folks in the morning, saying g'day to George, getting a coffee. Hey, Danny, how you going? Same again. And then you see, say g'day to all the same old folks, which they're not there anymore, actually. And I find that quite, quite important to have that sort of continuity in your day. It's, that's, that's the uh, attraction out here. There's no one thing to put your finger on it, but um, I think it's, it's not trying to hide anything. <laughs> Reza. <laughs> Reservoir isn't the only neighbourhood where the same old faces hang out down the street. It's not the only place in the world that's welcoming and feels like home. But it is the place where Danny, Renee and Pat find those things. And that's the point, I think. Neighbourhoods are different and people change. And it's hard to predict how a particular person will fit with a particular place. It's even harder for a person to tell another what is so great about where they live. At the end of the day, and just as Dennis DeNudo from The Castle once said, it's all about the vibe. Because every neighbourhood has a vibe, and people are often drawn to it because it matches their own vibe. And they can't explain it. When Danny says that Reservoir is genuine, What he's really saying is that the place feels right for him. Everyone's not going to come here and feel the same things, but Danny, Renee and Pat do. And that says as much about them as it does about Reservoir. And maybe that's the difference with being a teenager. You want to go out and find those people who share your values and share who you are and want to make you who you are. And then as you get older, maybe you're more settled with that and it doesn't matter too much if the people around you... I don't know, vote differently or have something different for dinner. The important thing is that they're kind enough to each other and keep an eye out for each other. You can sit at the light at the junction for the best part of the day. 
Well, you can wait a lifetime until they ship the level crossing away. They shoot pool all night at Edwards Place. Fill your donuts with Nutella. But there's one thing you can't do in the reservoir, and that's call it reservoir. Yeah, but nah, you don't call it reservoir. The next stop is Regent Street. This will be the last stop. Thank you for traveling with Yarra Trams. When I was young, the neighbourhood seemed like my entire world. I remember being a little tacker, growing up in regional Victoria, and my friends and I would take off on our BMX bikes, thinking we'd been on the biggest adventure if we managed to make it five streets from our houses before the separation anxiety kicked in. Streets not ventured down became new frontiers of possibility. We would stumble upon a milk bar, hitherto undiscovered, and walk in expecting to find strange and exciting new treats. I remember the days when you could get a red frog for five cents or a mixed lolly bag for 50. Simpler times. Today, a lot of that excitement is gone. Part of it is having a better understanding of what's around the neighbourhood, but another part of it is the cynical perception that nothing can be surprising. I feel like I know my neighbourhood back to front, but this isn't because I actually do, It's more because I have this belief that novelty is rare and most things are filled with the same ordinary sameness. Which is probably why the llama sticks out so much. Hi, my name's Mandy and I'm the llama owner from the llama house. The llama house has this life-sized llama in the front yard. It's pretty realistic. Curly white with a Mona Lisa smile. It faces the footpath so it can greet you as you pass with its big eyes staring into your soul like it knows all your secrets. It was a congratulations present from my daughter. She, she just had a baby. Friend of the family just pulled up with a, a trailer, jumped out and two guys started unloading it over the fence. <laughs> so why a llama then? Because they're freaks, yeah, basically. <laughs> okay. Uh, and does the llama have a name? Yes, its uh, name's Leopold. Why Leopold? Just because we have a child and she um, liked to name things that, so she could remember what sort of animal it was, so it had to be Leopold the llama. Yeah. I'm used to Leopold now, but when he first appeared, he gave me a bit of a fright. Parts of our brains work at different speeds processing information and I sensed the danger from a five-foot-tall quadruped before I realised it was just made of fibreglass. When we first got it, the uh, our Italian uh, pizza place, um, the guys were scared of it and we'd get a phone call on the house phone, sort of, your pizza is at the gate. And we'd have to go out with the money because they wouldn't come in and it had been dropped and we got it for free because <laughs> it was all mixed up together. <laughs> so na- the restaurant's actually taken a photo of the llama and they've got it next to the phone. So when we ring up and order takeaway, we say we're from the llama house and the delivery guy can see the picture of the llama and be able to walk with confidence to our front door. And despite his hard exterior, hollow body and ability to strike dread into local delivery drivers, Leopold is a friendly and unlikely neighbourhood novelty. In the Neighbourhood from Human Ordinary, produced and presented by Sam Loy, and that's part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. 
Case File is a popular collection of true crime stories from all over the world, told with a keen appreciation of narrative and suspense. It's not like some of those other true crime podcasts you'll hear where the production team goes a bit nuts and jazzes things up, digging up old interview tapes, or by creating a nice montage of news reports set to music. No, in Case File, all you have is this flat, unemotional Australian voice backed by minimal, often menacing music telling you what happened. It sounds different. The crimes can be grisly and bizarre. And to add to the mystery, nobody actually knows who the host and creator of this podcast is. All we do know is that he's an Australian who describes himself as just a random Aussie guy in my spare bedroom running a podcast. By email, he told me that he started the podcast when he was recovering from knee surgery. He was off work and had a lot of time on his hands, so he was a big podcast fan enjoying shows like Serial, Hardcore History and the Joe Rogan Experience, and it was listening to Joe Rogan that inspired him to start up Case File. Now 99 episodes in, this low-key project started in 2016 has well and truly gone global. It can sometimes attract millions of listeners to a single episode, It appears in the podcast charts in no less than 107 different countries. It's won several awards and now has a production team spread out across the UK, the US, Australia and Argentina. Here's some of Case 88. It's all about an English skydiver called Stephen Hilda, who plummeted to his death during a jump in 2003 after someone tampered with his gear. He was part of a student skydiving team called Black Rain and he was taking part in a competition with two teammates, Adrian Blair and David Masson. Black Rain shared the light single-engine aircraft with one other team. A total of eight skydivers were on board. Drop zone planes have no seats, so the skydivers sat on the floor facing the rear. Each person was between the legs of the skydiver behind them. The two cameramen knelt at the back of the group so they could see everyone on board. The propeller fired up for the first load of the day and Black Rain's first jump for the competition. As the plane took off, Black Rain's videographer turned on his camera. The footage caught Stephen Hilda laughing and jerking. As the plane got near the competition height of 13,000 feet, he and his teammates did one last gear check. They performed a ritual handshake before climbing into position in the door of the airplane. The three then launched off the edge into the open sky. Their exit didn't go completely to plan. It funnelled in skydiver speak, meaning they didn't come off cleanly. But they recovered after a few seconds and started their pre-planned formations. After 10 seconds, they reached terminal velocity the speed at which the body stops accelerating. At this stage, they were falling at around 200 kilometres per hour toward the Earth. For the next 45 seconds, the team continually changed their hand and leg grips to manoeuvre in the sky. With each new formation, they earned points for the competition. For an intermediate team, 10 points was good. 15 points was excellent. That day, Black Rain received a competition winning 19 points. It was the best jump the team had ever done together. They knew they'd aced it before their free fall was even finished. Barring a miracle from another team, they would be crowned national champions. 
the three exhilarated men made eye contact and screamed through their huge grins at each other, even though it was impossible to hear anything through the rushing wind. At 4,000 feet, around a minute after they had exited the plane, the three teammates turned away from each other to gain horizontal separation before they deployed their parachutes. The camera no longer needed to stay on them, but in any case, the camera lost sight of them due to cloud. After deploying their parachute, the first thing a skydiver is trained to do is to look around to see where everyone else is. Two people colliding mid-air spells disaster. As he descended, a big wad of white fabric swept past Adrian's vision. It registered as out of place, but he didn't make anything of it at the time. He was still buzzing from the amazing jump and was focused on preparing his landing usually the most dangerous part of the skydive. Chief Instructor Paul Hollow was on the ground, eyes on the sky. With the cloudy weather, he knew it was possible for a skydiver to overshoot the hangar and land in the nearby cornfields. Anyone making such a transgression would be made to buy a case of beer that night and ring a bell above the bar, alerting everyone that there was free beer to be had. It looked like there would be free beer that night, Hollow noticed the skydiver had landed in the cornfield. He dispatched one of his instructors to go and retrieve them. The instructor returned with a bundle in his arms. It was a white parachute. A main parachute may be many colours, but only reserve parachutes are white. Years of experience meant Hollow only had to glance at the stray white parachute to know something had gone seriously wrong. Accidents are accepted as being an integral part of skydiving. Deaths are rare. Death by double malfunction, where both parachutes fail, is almost unheard of. Usually, some sort of error on behalf of the skydiver causes a fatality. They may turn their parachute too close to the ground, hoping to build up speed for a really cool landing, but misjudge and hit too hard. They may deal badly with the malfunction of their main parachute and deploy their reserve parachute into it, causing the two to tangle. Two skydivers might collide mid-air, either in freefall or under their parachutes, rendering one or both unconscious and unable to land safely. But never had Paul Hollow seen nor heard of an incident where a reserve parachute broke away from the rest of the skydiving kit and the person wearing it. A main parachute has special release rings, so a skydiver can detach it if it's malfunctioning. However, a reserve parachute is permanently attached. There's no getting rid of it, unless you cut it with a knife or climb out of the harness in mid-air. Paul Hollow climbed onto the roof of a car and scanned the surrounding fields. He spotted a large, unnatural indentation in the tall stalks of corn. He climbed down and headed into the field towards the indentation. He found Stephen Hilda. Having hit the ground at almost 200 kilometres per hour, the corn had done nothing to break Stephen's fall. He was still wearing his skydiving harness, but neither of his parachutes were billowing around him as he would normally expect. A single glance at Stephen's shoulder area told Hollow all he needed to know. Stephen's gear had been tampered with, his parachute sabotaged. 
Chief Instructor Paul Hollow called the police. Detective Superintendent Colin Andrews of Humberside Police arrived at the airfield. Paul Hollow took him aside and told him immediately that this was no ordinary skydiving accident. The dead man's equipment had been interfered with. Skydiving experts were able to piece together what happened. A long piece of webbing, called the bridle, connected the pilot chute to the pin that opens the container where the main parachute is stored. Stephen's bridle had been cut. The cut bridle and the pilot chute had been stuffed back into the elastic sleeve. There would be no way of telling it was tampered with without pulling the pilot chute out of the sleeve. And there would be no reason to do that unless you suspected something was wrong. This meant the pilot chute was no longer attached to the pin. When Stephen pulled it out at deployment height and let it go, there was nothing to pull the pin and drag the main parachute out of the container. So it stayed lodged in there, impossible for Stephen to do anything to get it out. When he realised his main parachute was malfunctioning, Stephen pulled the handle that deployed his white reserve chute. It launched, but all four pieces of webbing that attached the reserve canopy to his harness, called the risers, had also been cut. The reserve parachute simply flew away. Stephen had no more parachutes left. All this would have happened between 4,000 and 2,000 feet above the ground. Plummeting at terminal velocity, Stephen had to endure at least 10 to 20 seconds of knowing he was going to die, and there was nothing he could have done about it. The cypress he had so carefully set prior to takeoff did its job. It fired, but there was no reserve parachute for it to release. From the moment Stephen exited the aircraft, he was a dead man. Nothing could have saved him. Some of Case 88, Stephen Hilda from the Case File podcast, and you can find more details of where to listen to more of its 99 episodes and to subscribe on our website now at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. And that's about all from us for now. You've been listening to Ghosts in the Machine, to the best of our knowledge, Human Ordinary and Case File. And if you found something great to listen to, then do let me know at pods at rnz.co.nz and I'll share as many of your recommendations as I can in future shows. From me, Richard Scott, enjoy the rest of your weekend. I'll be back next week. See you. Do you love anime, gaming, movies, and discovering how your favorite pop culture affects everything you do? Then join us on Crunchyroll Presents The Anime Effect. I'm Nick Friedman. I'm Lee Alec Murray. And I'm Leah President. Every week you can listen in while we break down the latest pop culture news and dish on what new releases we can't get enough of. Whether you love movies. I'm going to tell you all about the uh, hopeful 4K re-release of Tron Legacy that happens. (laughs) (laughs) I'm right there with you. Or music. The music in this show is absolutely incredible. Or anime. And under this mask is another mask. (laughs) You can discover your new favorites right here on The Anime Effect. Listen every Friday wherever you get your podcasts and watch full video episodes on Crunchyroll or on the Crunchyroll YouTube channel.